You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. We're going to be in Malachi 2. We're going to start in verse 17, and we're going to read through chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. Uh, My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, It's so good to see you all this evening. Uh, We are in the fifth week of our series in Malachi that we've called The God of Promises. Um, And I don't know about you guys, but I'm really enjoying the series. I had an opportunity years ago to teach through the Minor Prophets in a Sunday school class. And I I really just kind of came to love the Minor Prophets during that time. They're they're short, right? That's why they're called Minor. But they're also really punchy, right? They they pack a wall up in a way, and, and they all do in their own way. And I, you know, maybe that says something about my attention span, um, just that, 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 that I like that they're short. I like that they grab my attention. Um, but I hope that you're seeing that as we, as we step through Malachi. Um, I gave my life to Christ when I was 16 years old. I was between my sophomore and junior year of high school. Um, I'd spent the better part of my sophomore year in the hospital. I was battling leukemia. Um, And I found out, just as I was about to enter my junior year, that I had relapsed. And, um, you know, I knew at that point, I'd been, my family had been back in church, I knew at that point that I was in desperate need of a Savior for something far more than just my health, something far more than cancer. And I was having the conversation with my pastor um, he said two things that, I'm all, that, I'll, that I'll always remember that have stuck with me. He said, John, first of all, being a believer, accepting Christ, it doesn't mean that the cancer is going to go away. 
right? Again, as a mean, you'll be cured, right? That's been a very personal reminder to me throughout my life as in, in the midst of suffering. But like this, this doesn't mean things will be easy in life, right? But um, the second thing is this. He said, it's okay to ask God why. But it matters how you ask. It matters, um, in, in other words, it matters what the intent behind the question is and the way that you ask it. Um, and that's, that's, I think we see that in Malachi, right? There's a pattern in the way that Malachi brings God's message to his people, right? We see a statement and then a response uh, from, in the form of a question from the people. He says, you know, he begins this in, in chapter one. He says, God begins with, I've loved you. Yet the people ask, how have you loved us? God says, you despise me. And they ask, how are we despising you? <clears throat> in tonight's text, we're going to see another charge and yet another question. And hopefully as we've worked our way through Malachi this far, you're able to see yourself a little bit in the story. Um, ways that maybe you haven't loved him well. Uh, ways in which your faith at times looks a lot like the people that Malachi is speaking to, the people of his generation. But hopefully, and even more importantly, um, you're reminded that God is faithful despite our faithlessness. Always, forever, faithful, right? We, we just sang that, great is your faithfulness. And I hope you see that again tonight as we walk through this portion of Malachi. Tonight, I want us to see three things, really. There's a, there's a problem, and then there's a couple of promises. All right, the problem of evil and injustice, but then the promise of the Lord's presence, and then the promise of purification. Right? The promise of the Lord's presence, the promise of purification, but first the problem of evil. Right, so let's, let's pray real quick. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you tonight. Lord, I, I, I pray, Lord, that as we sang earlier, Lord, that you would allow us in this time to turn our eyes upon you. Lord, that we can look at you and know that this, the things of earth, the things that so easily distract us, Father, even as we sit here and we worship you, that those things would fade away. Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the wonders in your word. Lord, that you would incline our hearts to you in this time, Lord. Just may your word be fresh and new. May your spirit work in us tonight. Let's pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want us to see is the, the problem of evil and injustice. And we'll start there in Malachi 2.17 again. Thanks, Lauren, for reading that for us before. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? 
And so remember, we talked about how you ask the question matters. Here's just a, a little example, right? How have we wearied him? You know, there's a difference in asking. Like, you could, you could really wonder and want to find out the answer. Like, Lord, how, how have we wearied you? Right? That's a, that's a question we would want to know, right? If we're trying to repent and believe and trust. But that's not their attitude, right? How have we wearied him? You know, one of the hardest things um, that we're going to wrestle with in the Christian life is the problem of evil in the world. And when we think of evil, we tend to think of, of, of moral evil, right? Uh, things like murder, abuse, terrorism, racism, um, all sorts of wickedness and injustice. If you're paying attention at all over the last few years, it seems like we've seen it all, right, in a very short amount of time. Um, both the events that have taken place but also in the, in the attitudes and the actions of, of people on all sides of the issues, right? They're, they're, they're venomous attitudes on both sides, right? Even in those that claim to know Christ. But aside from moral evils in the world, we, we also encounter natural evils. Things like tornadoes, right? We're in Oklahoma. Earthquakes, other natural disasters, Pandemics that kill millions of people. High-rise condos that collapse without notice. Right? People throughout history have wondered how all the evil that we encounter in the world can be reconciled with the Bible's claim of God and, and in His supreme goodness, His love, and His power. Why would the God of justice tolerate such things? Why would he tolerate evil and injustice in the world? And maybe this evening you feel that in an even more personal way. Maybe it isn't so much like the big evil out there. Um, you, you feel it sting personally, intimately. Like why, why, God, is this happening to me? When will this pain go away? Why is nothing going my way while that person seems to have it all? And these are the things that might make us ask, like the people in Malachi, where's the God of justice? Listen, that, that question is as old as the fall because the problem of evil and injustice began with the fall. The problem of evil, in whatever form it takes, is that it's, great, it's, it's greatly disturbing, right? It upsets us. Even most that don't know Christ recoil at the evil we see, right? But we as Christians know that the claims, that there's a claim that God has, that God is, that he's on his throne, right? That he's sovereign over all. So we have a, we have a, a problem of trying to reconcile that right we know he's good and righteous so how do we begin to reconcile that with the reality that sometimes it seems as though the kingdom of darkness has a greater foothold on this earth than the kingdom of light how do we reconcile those two things and i think the answer is we need to look to the word when we come to the scriptures we recognize that we're not alone in wrestling with these things these questions 
Instead, we find in scriptures that the people of God down through the ages have also wrestled with those very same questions in very personal ways. They too have seen evil and wickedness, the outworking of moral and spiritual bankruptcy. They've seen the evil prospering at the hands of the, of the ungodly. They too have asked, when is justice going to be carried out? Or in the words of the psalmist, how long, O Lord, shall the wicked exalt? See, the Bible doesn't brush over this problem of evil with a neat or clean answer. But it does give an answer. It does provide a way forward. And as we hear the people of God in Scripture wrestling with the problem of evil in their own lives, they also give us the resources uh, for learning how to wrestle with it ourselves. They teach us how to lament. They give us both a model and a language to pray when we encounter those troubling realities. Texts like Psalm 13 or Psalm 73, the book of Habakkuk. Those are just a few examples that teach us how to lament when faced with the problem of evil. Psalm 13 begins with David asking, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? Yet it ends with, but I have trusted in your steadfast love and will sing to you forever. Psalm 73 is a model for taking our doubts, our questions, our anger to God, all in the context of worshiping him. The book of Habakkuk, which is another minor prophet, It's all a dialogue between the prophet and God on the very topic of injustice. It ends with Habakkuk saying, Though the the fig trees won't bloom, the crops are bare and the herd is gone, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. We can see a pattern in how we can rightly bring our questions before God. We can ask the hard questions, but with faith, that rests in God's timing for making all things new and all things right. When we're faced with the problem of evil and suffering, what we see in Scripture is not necessarily some simple answer, but it doesn't mean there are no answers. God's Word teaches us how to lament with faith. But that isn't where the people here in Malachi are. And unfortunately, I think that's that some of us in this room might tend to wander in those same spaces. Sometimes the problem of evil and our experience with it leads us in a different direction, a darker direction. Instead of learning how to lament that problem with faith, trusting that God has and will do something about it, some of us may conclude that instead that something is fundamentally lacking with God and that he can't be trusted. We can begin to believe that because of all the evil and injustice in the world. God simply can't be who the scriptures claim he is. God can't be both good and powerful. He's, he's got to be either one or the other, or maybe he doesn't exist at all, right? So, so maybe he is all good. But then he can't be all powerful, otherwise evil and injustice wouldn't exist. 
He may be all good, but it's beyond his power to do anything about the evil and injustice we encounter, those things that we see in the world. On the other hand, maybe we lean another way. Maybe God is all-powerful, but if that's the case, then he must not be all good. Because if he's all-powerful and he can deal with evil and suffering wherever he wants to, whenever he wants to, but then he lets it go unchecked, it demonstrates he's not good and loving. Either way, the two claims that God is all good and all powerful surely can't be mutually exclusive, or they must be mutually exclusive. In the end, God is less than what the Bible claims him to be, and he can't be trusted. That's where the people of Malachi are. They see things like corruption and justice in the land, and it seems that they see the wicked getting ahead. They're getting ahead in life at the expense of the godly. And they see many of the things that we see today in our own lives and that, and that people in the past before them all throughout Scripture had seen. But they conclude that because of the presence of those injustices that the, and then the wickedness in the land, that something must be fundamentally lacking with God. And because of that, Malachi says, you've wearied the Lord. Their response just scratches the surface as to what's in their hearts. How have we wearied you? Right? They aren't seeking to understand. They aren't seeking to check their hearts. This is the same God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And here he's wearied. He's getting tired. He's worn out. He's getting annoyed. Why? Because they're questioning his very character. They're saying that he's not who he says he is at all. They concluded that God must be unjust, and he's really not that good. They make the statement that, in effect, God delights in injustice and evil, and there's no way he can be good. Then they say with a sneering kind of cynicism, where is the God of justice? To them, God is negligent and he's absent. And as a result of those thoughts, they're not going to bother with him any longer. There's no point, they think, in serving or worshiping him. So they gloss over his commands for worship and his commands for marriage, as we've seen them already do in Malachi. And they're going to embrace some of the wickedness in the land themselves because they don't see any point anymore in obeying the commands of God. So that raises the question tonight. Where's the problem of evil leading you? That same very real problem, the heartbreaking problem of evil and injustice that leads the psalmist and Habakkuk one way, right, the right way, leads Malachi's audience in a completely different direction. Where is it leading you? If you pay any attention to the evangelical world, you've no doubt seen what seems to be this wave of deconversions. So often when you hear these stories, people are walking away from the faith because they've, they've reached a point where they can no longer reconcile how a good and loving God could either allow evil to happen or call something that they see as good evil. 
They just can't reconcile that any longer. And so their answer is to walk away. He can't be a good God, the good God he says he is. They decided they can no longer live in that tension between our sin-tainted perspective and the reality that there is a good and loving God who holds all things together. What holds us in that tension is faith. Faith that he's exactly who he says he is. So how is your faith? Are you like the people here in Malachi? Discontent? Believing that God must be somehow less than what the scriptures claim he is and therefore can't be trusted? Do those thoughts ever creep in? Friends, it's a dangerous place to be. We have to fight those thoughts with all we have. But thankfully, Malachi doesn't just leave us hanging there. He gives us a way forward. He gives us a promise. And that's the first thing I want us to see is the promise of God's presence. It's the first promise and the second point, the promise of God's presence. The first promise that we hear from Malachi is that God is going to send a messenger to his people. Look at verse 3, 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we've already come across the word messenger in Malachi. Right, back in 2.7, Malachi is rebuking the corrupt priests of the day. He described this ideal priesthood as the Lord intended. And he referred to them as messengers of the Lord. They were the messengers who were called to minister in and around the temple by offering instruction uh, to the people of God, right? ministering and declaring God's word as God's ambassadors. They were, in a sense, messengers of the covenant. Also, Malachi's name itself means messenger. Right, Malachi is a messenger of the Lord. But here in 3.1, God is looking beyond both of those meanings, beyond both of those messengers. He looks beyond the Levitical priests. He looks beyond Malachi. And he looks into the future and he envisions another messenger. In fact, he envisions not one messenger, but two the beautiful thing is that the way the canon is instructed, the way, the way the Bible has been sovereignly put together, all we have to do is turn a few pages forward and we begin to see exactly what Malachi is telling the people here. Plus, we have the benefit of being on this side of the prophecy fulfilled. Right? The people of Israel would have to wait another 450 years but we can see exactly how God was faithful to his word. Look again at the text. First, there's this messenger who will prepare the way before the Lord. Early in the Gospels, we read about this guy called John the Baptist. The one who came, as Isaiah 40 also prophesied, to prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Malachi here is foretelling the coming of John the Baptist. So he's the first messenger. But there's a second one. There's a second messenger. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. 
And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. This messenger of the covenant is the Lord who suddenly comes to his temple. Malachi shows here that the, the preparatory work of the one messenger comes to announce that the king of kings is on the way. But then he proclaims that the messenger of the covenant, the Lord, is on his way too. And he's coming to his temple. God is coming. So God is on his way. But unlike the messengers that God sent to his people in the past, the messengers like the Levitical priests and the prophets like Malachi, those messengers who were sent to speak, in the, speak the name of God or in the name of God to the problems of evil and injustice in the world. Right? They were speaking in the name of God. But this messenger of the covenant is better because he's not just going to speak to the problem of evil and injustice. He's going to do something about it. The messenger of the covenant is going to come into their midst and bring, in, bring, justice, uh, bring the justice that they claim is what they're looking for and what they're longing for. All right, so the God of justice is on his way. But notice where he's coming first. He's coming to the temple, to his temple. He's coming to his own people. That had to be a terrifying turn for the people of the Malachi's audience. The people who are complaining not with faith, but with cynicism about the problem of evil. So God says to his people, you're able to identify all of the injustice and all the sin that's out there, but you've missed the disease that's killing you from the inside. And so if we look forward to the Gospels, we know, too, the rest of the story. Jesus comes, not as this conquering warrior king to deal with all of the problems out there, to destroy all the evil out there immediately. That's not how he came, right? He comes quietly. And when he comes, just as he promised, we see Jesus ministering in and around his own people first. He comes to his own people then he goes to the heart of the religious and social life. And then, literally, he comes to his temple. And he cleanses it. And he judges it. He calls out the hypocrisy and the vain worship that characterize it, just like it characterized the temple in Malachi's day. But then, he does something only he can do. Only God can do. On the cross, he builds a new temple in his body by taking upon himself the sins of his people. So they're not consumed. Jesus comes first to deal with the sins of his people and to be consumed by their sins and to be consumed by the wrath of God on their behalf to satisfy the justice that God, God demands. So when he comes again at the end of the age, when he comes to deal with ultimate justice, his people, his elect won't be consumed, but rather they'll be saved. But here we are, and we're in this odd space where the plan isn't quite complete yet. Like the people of Malachi's day, there's a sense 
in which we wait. We're in the already, but not yet. In one sense, justice is done. The victory is already won. Our sins are forgiven. They're paid for. If we're in Christ, then we're declared right. But we still see and feel the effects of sin. We feel the effects of evil and injustice in us and around us. So the battle isn't over yet. And that leads us to our second promise. It's a promise of purification, not punishment. Malachi 3.2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So the last thing I want us to see is that there's a purpose in all this. Right? There's a purpose in all the things that we have to endure. He's purifying us. He's making us more and more like Christ. Right? The refiner's fire that Malachi speaks of here. The refiner's fire doesn't consume. The refiner's fire is it's not like a furnace that just turns everything to ash. It's not like a wildfire that just mows down everything in its path. The refiner's fire, the refiner uses fire to remove impurities, right, from from precious metals like gold and and silver. And the reference to the fuller, the fuller's soap, the fuller was a launderer, right? They're washing clothes, and the launderer uses that soap to remove stains from fabric until it's clean again, right? So it's washing things white again, making them pure. But the refiner's fire, it's still a fire. What does that mean for us? It means that God is using the difficulties of this world as a means of making us more and more like Jesus. John Piper, in a sermon on this passage, said, The refining fire has two forms. The fire of affliction or suffering and the fire of intentional self-denial. Right, we can see the fire of affliction in passages like James 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In the fire of self-denial, we can see in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your left hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So there's a seriousness with which we're to treat sin. And there's a reality that we'll suffer. But he, he tells us how to deal with those things. And right, suffering and self-denial, they're not pleasant. But the promise here is that for those who place their faith in him, 
God is using those things not as judgment, but to purify us. He's using them to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. Our passage this evening closes with verse 5. He says this, Then, and this is after he talks about refining and purifying a people, he says, then I'll, refi- then I'll draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and those who don't fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I read one commentator that said that that collection, that list is meant to kind of be this all-inclusive list that no one escapes. There's no sin that will go unpunished. But really for us, for if you're a believer here tonight, you've placed your faith in Christ, this is our final hope in the face of all of the evil and all of the injustice around us. We have hope that there's going to be judgment. There's going to come a day when all of those who do evil, apart from the Lord, are going to receive what they deserve. So that's not a burden that we have to carry. It's not a burden that we were ever meant to carry. We don't need to be crushed by the weight of the evil we see in the world around us. God's answer to the people of Malachi's day was to send the Lord to his temple. Friends, the Lord has come to his temple. He bore the greatest of sins and evil and justice so we might have life. And in doing so, you, he made you his temple. His body is his temple. We are are his temple. So in the face of evil, in the face of everything around us that just seems to fall apart, the things that burden us, the things that weigh us down, the things we can't wrap our minds around, know that God is near. He's in his temple. Rest in that. Repent. Believe. Turn to him and know that one day he's coming again and we won't be in this tension anymore, right? We'll be with him forever. There'll be no more pain, be no more evil, no more injustice. Friends, that's where we rest. That's what we have to look forward to. The Lord is near. The Lord is with us. That's our promise. Let's pray.